0: Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. This episode, we look at Intel's Optane memory and whether or not it has a future, and Ryzen, changing the face of games. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McKay. Several podcasts ago, we talked about a topic somewhat dear to every enthusiast's heart, which is forced obsolescence.
1: Oh, that's not near to anyone's heart. Really. No, it's
0: not. It's not near to anyone's heart, but it is near to everyone's pocketbook. And it really is. Eh, I don't know. It's something that companies have made so that they can take money out of your pocket and put it into their pocket more often than it was in the past.
1: Well, sadly, that's just the cost of doing business and trying to stay alive and profitable since the PC enthusiast market has become such a small markup. It
0: has. And I want to say that Intel and Microsoft are working together to bring forced obsolescence into the mainstream more so than they have in the past. And by that I mean a new technology that was introduced with the Z two seventy chipset, KB Lake. Okay. Called Optane Memory.
1: You know, I've seen this. It's been getting a lot of traffic, especially on the social media, but I have to admit I haven't looked too deeply into what it
0: is. Okay, well, it is basically its lowest form, an SSD cache module. It hooks into the M.2 slot on your motherboard, so it has direct PCI Express interactivity, OK, and it acts as a high-speed buffer between your rotational drive or, S- or SSDs, if you have those, and your main system.
1: OK, so why wouldn't you just buy a good SSD or a hybrid uh, drive?
0: Well, that, that is actually a pretty good question. Although the other part of that is that Optane memory only is supported on the 200 series chipsets. Oh,
1: now that actually makes it a little more interesting. So, so let me get this straight. So Intel has created a caching system, maybe is the right term?
0: Yeah, it's an SSD cache is what I'm going to call it. It's kind of at the lowest level what it is.
1: But that's only available with a specific chipset
0: only available with a specific chipset and KB Lake. So I think if you had a Z270 and then you put a Skylake on there, I think it still works.
1: But but it uses a standard M.2, right? So in theory, Mm -hmm. it could work on, well, most of the higher-end modern boards. No. All right, do tell. (laughs) Okay, so
0: Optane Memory only works on the 200 Series chipsets. Let's put yourself into the shoes of an enthusiast builder. Okay. You want to get uh, the latest... KB Lake system, so you go get a Z270. Yeah, Z270 motherboard. And what do you use for storage? SSDs. Right. You might use a rotational drive, you know, just to store games, you know, multi terabytes of games and stuff like that. You
1: gotta dump that stuff somewhere.
0: Yeah. The thing is, though, the SSD that's in your system is it's loading the operating system. It's loading your user profiles It's loading everything that would normally take a long time aside from your games, which are on this rotational drive. Right? So you could buy an Octane memory module, which is 32 gigabytes plugs into your M.2 and it will speed up loading those games.
1: I feel like we should talk about the name. That's op like O P Tane. Yeah. O P sounds like octane when you say it, which maybe is intentional. Yeah, maybe, but okay. So let's step back. So I buy this thing and it, is going to precache my applications. Mm-hmm. So in theory, I would want this to run in front of my storage drive or in front of my primary drive. Or,
0: I think it runs in front of all of your drives, although that portion of it, I didn't really dive too much into it in terms of what I read. Okay. So the thing is, though, you're buying high end gear for your Z270 build that you put together. It might be a 7700K or something like that.
1: Yeah, pretty cutting edge stuff still.
0: Yeah, with DDR4 memory. It, you know, you're building a really fast machine. Yeah. Thing is, though, this Optane memory module is kind of best served on like maybe a Sandy Bridge system, a, a bit older. It, you still have your rotational drives, which were more prevalent back then because SSDs were really expensive. Right. Uh, even Ivy Bridge, any of those old systems. As long as you have an M.2 slot, you should be able to use an Optane memory module.
1: Well, I do have to admit that I have a lot of enthusiast friends that are still not using their M.2 slots, mm-hmm. so at least that would give it a use. Right,
0: except that this module only works on the 200 series chipset. Intel released this technology for this latest edition cutting-edge system, whereas it would best be served on an older system to give more, you know, breathe
1: more life into it. Well, there must be an advantage to it somewhere i mean aside from forced obsolescence uh i'm just having trouble visualizing it because you're buying a high-end system you're probably dumping a big chunk of money into drives you've got already a pretty Mm cutting-edge processor
0: yeah so in the big picture you really don't need it on that system you need it on an older system which is not available
1: for okay so let's talk about cost performance like so we i mean we're talking like a like a terabyte thing is it you know, 32 megs. I mean, what kind of caching we're we talking about? Cause in my world caching takes you back. Uh-huh. I mean, it really does. And the effectiveness is limited by a lot of things.
0: Uh-huh. Well, these modules are, I mean, I'm looking at a shop at Google here on um, my Google results. Go Google. It's 32 gigs. It costs you $82, you know, and that price fluctuates depending on where you buy it from. The benchmarks that I've seen have been pretty much a logarithmic sort of, um, performance gain so the biggest gains are going to be on your rotational drives which are a bit slower it decreases when you have a very fast ssd and if you're an enthusiast uh, you can put two of those drives together of course if you do two rotational drives in a raid then you get close to ssd performance so to speak
1: well if you have good ones
0: yeah and if you do two ssds in a raid then of course you get even better performance so much in fact that a caching system would almost slow it down depending on your system usage. So it kind of begs the question, Is like, well, is Intel releasing this Optane memory as a stopgap for future systems, which I don't see much of a benefit because storage is getting faster, M.2 drives are getting larger. If you already are using your M.2 slot for an M.2 SSD, you can't use the Optane memory module. It begs the question, Is like, well... Why didn't it get released for older systems? And it kind of brings me back to, well, they want you to buy new stuff. That makes sense. If you also look at Windows 10, for instance, uh, the optimizations for KB Lake and even the new Ryzen CPUs are all on Windows 10. You can't run Windows 7 anymore with those machines.
1: Well, and they've been trying to get us to, you know, obsolete the operating systems for, <laughs> for a long time For now. a really long time. So it, it really got me thinking
0: back into my history about, uh, you know, with computer hardware. I've been around for a while, right? Right. And I have this motherboard in a box. I'm going to pull it out real quick.
1: Sure, go. Huh, what the heck? Okay, uh, so here
0: I have, and I'll post a picture in the show notes because this is, you know, radio, right? I have a PC chips motherboard. And if anybody knows what pc chips is it's kind of an obsolete well not really obsolete they went out of business a long time ago
1: yeah they're kind of a cut rate uh company that made a a lot of bank making clones
0: Mm -hmm. so what we have here is a 386 dx motherboard um next the cpu itself is soldered to the board and we have eight sim slots and these are the memory slots Right. Uh, so basically there's two banks of memory here because so, you had to use four SIM modules to get, you know, it, to boot the system.
1: The irony is when you first pulled that out, it looked like a riser card. That's how obsolete that is that I just, I couldn't even click what it was.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So we have, um, let see, one, two, three, four, five, six ISA slots. Uh, five of them. No, we have six. Okay. Yeah. Five of them are the 16 bit. One of them is the eight bit, I believe is what it is. We're talking bits now. But the, the interesting thing on here is that we have the 386DX. The CPU itself doesn't have a math coprocessor built onto the chip itself. That's right. And at the time, motherboards were being released with just the CPU where they might have just had a press socket. But there was always a secondary socket on here for the 387 math coprocessor.
1: Yeah, man, that's cutting edge technology back in the day.
0: Mm -hmm. This is, you know, I'm kind of making a parallel with Optane. So it's like you buy this motherboard and you plug it into a machine and you're just maybe playing some games or, um, you know, doing what you did back with Windows. Not even Windows, really. DOS. (laughs) (laughs) So the only time you need the math coprocessor is if you did a lot of calculations like spreadsheets loading up drawings or doing large calculations and programming and stuff.
1: Right, like, you know, putting a man on the moon.
0: Yeah. The nice thing about this motherboard, though, is that it has a socket for the Mathco processor, but it also has another CPU socket, so you could technically upgrade this 386DX to one of the 486s with the same pin pinout. It gave you a lot of functionality that you wouldn't normally get with a board off the shelf, which is kind of cool. But, as you can see, this system, it doesn't have any memory in it because it's old, but it doesn't have the coprocessor or the other CPU in it. So whoever had this board either cleaned all that off before they sold it, or it never got populated, meaning that they gave you this feature and nobody took advantage because it was expensive.
1: Right. Well, and at the speed that things are being developed, it doesn't surprise me. No. And
0: that's that brings me back to the Optane memory situation where we have a feature that is largely not being used or would rarely be used because people are using M.2 slots for SSDs. They might not need them because they're using fast SSDs already. And a lot of people have already gotten rid of their rotational drives, which is really the biggest benefit of having this Optane memory module.
1: I'm a little confused still at the target market. It seems like the kind of technology that should just roll downhill and eventually be supported on, you know, all the way back to Haswell Maybe further than that, but it doesn't sound like that's the roadmap. No, it doesn't. And I'm a little confused about that,
0: actually. But, you know, that Intel and Microsoft are are working together to make sure that the latest and greatest technology is supported the best. For instance, with KB Lake, it is only supported with Windows 10. You can't run it on Windows 7 unless you have specialized drivers. In a lot of cases, they're not optimized, so they don't run very well. You know, you can physically install Windows 7 on a KB Lake or even on one of the new Ryzen's, but you can't get the drivers to make the storage work right. You can't get drivers to make the video work right. So it makes you, it forces you to upgrade to Windows
1: 10. Well, there are definitely a lot of advantages to that too, but you're going to get hit in the pocketbook, especially, you know, if the ob- obsolescence of these things is a, is a short cycle. Yeah. Well, we've talked before about, you know, PC cycles being five years or less.
0: There was another similar technology that Intel had supported with motherboards that I wanted to kind of bring up because I thought it was really fun. And this is back in the Pentium days, the MMX. So like the, on the, was it, the 430 VX and the 430 TX chipsets. This is back in, you know, a while ago.
1: Yeah, like the 90s for sure. I remember those when I was first getting my teeth cut into custom builds.
0: These CPUs came with a level one and a level two cache, but they were relatively small Unlike modern processors where we have a level one, a level two, level three, level four cache, right? And that's the caches are used by the CPU so that they can process information and then have somewhere for it to go before it needs to go to system memory and then back to wherever it needs to, to go to do what it's supposed to do, like go to a video card or process a mouse input, something like that. Well, on these Pentium MMX systems... On the motherboards, they had a brown slot right next to the CPU. Oh, that's right. And that was for a larger cache module, which increased the the level two cache on the CPU. At the time, those cache modules were really expensive, and a lot of people didn't understand why they needed to have one and how it would really increase performance. And it was directly tied to how much system memory you had. So if you had just the normal amount of memory at the time, which I think was around, what, eight megs or something like that. Yeah, I was
1: going to say maybe four
0: back in those days. Yeah, it wasn't really a lot. It may be, well, it might have. We're not talking a lot. We're not talking gigabytes here. We're talking megabytes.
1: Yeah, 64 megs, I think, was what uh, I remember being the standard in 486 land. And then if you went 128 or 256, 512 was kind of, yeah, that meant you were made of money back in those days.
0: Yeah. So a lot of system builders didn't have a lot of memory on their machines when they sold them and the extra cache module only supported or only benefited systems that had a large amount of memory. So if you were running again, calculations working on a workstation, something like that, where you had multiple, you know, close to a gig of memory, you could use this extra cache module and get more better performance out of it.
1: Yeah. But that's another expensive upgrade that no one took advantage of. And that's, uh, it's kind of what
0: I'm getting at. It's like, well, we have these technologies that are coming out and that they're supposed to benefit you and they do have a benefit, but only in certain small situations for the upper crust of the enthusiasts that are building these machines.
1: I got you, Dennis. Now this is starting to sound a little bit patterny. I think I remember at least a different variation of that. We've all been talking about really hardware solutions that are are limited, but I can't help but feel the same thing that I felt when they used to make us install those USB sticks in Vista. Remember? <laughs> it was oh. a Ready Boost, right?
0: Yeah, take advantage of Ready Boost.
1: Yeah, and so we all were kind of like, all right, so we should find these USB flash drives, and they're going to make our system so much faster, and it just didn't really work that way. No, and
0: all the memory manufacturers were on board, too. I remember at Computex seeing these uh, USB sticks that didn't have a standard USB plug on the end. They had the, what was it, the 9-pin, which would be an internal header. And that was, they were dedicated ReadyBoost wow. drives. You just plug them in, you close up the side of your case, and then you're done. But a lot of people didn't, well, I should say not a lot of people. You used ReadyBoost. I but sure
1: tried it. I don't really think it made enough of a difference to even be worth the effort. Well, of course, maybe I just didn't have the right hardware.
0: And... Nobody really understood Red- ReadyBoost was supposed to do. They said it was a bit of an application cache, but USB 2.0 was not that fast.
1: Well, and it was so limited in what sticks and what sizes you could use that even if you had an extra USB stick sitting around, the odds that it was going to be compatible and even useful were pretty small. Mm-hmm.
0: So there we have four, five different technologies that are kind of a bit obsolete, but they've been released to kind of force you to move on to the new shinier technology. You know, we have ReadyBoost for instance was Microsoft trying to get you to move to, from Windows XP to Windows Vista. Right? Which was Vista wasn't really that popular to begin with. So
1: Sure, and you could use the hardware you already have cuz yeah. you know, why not?
0: Yeah, and then we have Intel and Microsoft again working together to try to get you to upgrade your system, you know, get off Sandy Bridge, which is perfectly great for games and anything you wanted to do to move to KB Lake so you can take advantage of Optane memory. But if you're building a new system, then, I, you know, you're going to have that storage subsystem already.
1: So Well, that's maybe a good opportunity to talk about the price differences. And we've talked about this cycle before where sometimes you've got, Hardware is ahead of software, and software is ahead of hardware. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're still really in a market where the computer hardware is ahead of the software. And what that means is that, you know, the normal person's hardware is more than adequate for the highest percentage of software that's out there. I mean, you really have to be running some pretty specialized software to need high-end hardware like Titan Z, for example.
0: Yeah, and it would make sense if they introduced it on. You know, maybe it's going to be on X229. I think that's the new chipset that's coming out that will be replacing X99. We'll probably have Optane on that. And that's for the workstation market. I can see a real benefit of using an Optane module on that system because you have a lot more PCI Express lanes, you have a lot more storage options, and it's designed for a market that will be using a lot of storage, using a lot of computational processing
1: and I get that. To me this sounds like something that should be coming out like a, you know, a server rack system where you might have multiple drives and each one would have one of these little cards, but at the price point and performance point I'm seeing now, to me this is a this is a no-go. I would agree. Dennis, we talked a little bit about the press on the Optane memory stick. But most of the press I've been paying attention to lately has been about the Ryzen processors and how great they seem to be for the money. I'm wondering, now that I'm kind of a couple generations behind with my Haswell-based machine here, if it's time to talk Ryzen.
0: Well, definitely. We should always talk Ryzen.
1: Well, we should talk Ryzen, but what I'm wondering is, is it really true, with all these world records that I've been seeing and all these exciting press releases, that Ryzen is finally competitive enough to be considered a mainstream enthusiast product?
0: Yes and no. And, of course, that is the proper enthusiast answer, because... Because? Because everyone loves AMD. Because it's the less expensive option. Always has been. Yes. And there was a time that AMD was the performance leader. I would say that was back in the Athlon XP days. Right. And then they released the Athlon 64, which was 64-bit processing, which forced Intel to do 64-bit processing. Right. And ever since then, Intel has kind of like been the performance leader.
1: Well, it seems like at least for the last couple of generations with AMD, we've talked about how they have tried to dominate the lower end and more specifically the mobile platform because mm-hmm. they were eh, not really cutting edge performance, but good enough. And the downside seemed to wander around power.
0: Yeah. AMD was focused a lot on efficient, both in like cost and also power efficiency. So we saw that with the FM2 and FM2 Plus CPUs where we had very low powered CPUs, but they didn't require a lot of power to run. They didn't require a big heatsink to run. They overclocked pretty well. They were a good value for the money. However, they were not very good in terms of performance based off of what Intel was releasing at the time. They still had their FX processors with the AM3 and AM3 Plus sockets. Those were their mainstream performance CPUs and they had multiple cores. I hey, have one that's eight cores. It's quite good, although it is a bit slower than the Sandy Bridges that came out at the time, and it required a really beefy heatsink to run because it had a 220-watt TDP, which is more than you know your X99 system you put together.
1: Right, which is crazy because you started having to spend the money elsewhere instead of just buying a better processor up front.
0: Right, and the market responded to that because... Motherboards stopped being upgraded for this old CPU. AMD stopped kind of releasing them on a regular basis. So we had, you could buy an old FX CPU. I call it old just because it's older technology. But the motherboards you could buy didn't even have USB 3 or USB 3.1. And that's why Ryzen is such a big deal because it's a ground up CPU design, designed in such a way that it has scalable architecture. So you have multiple cores, and they also support SMT, which is the symmetric multi-threading. It's basically hyper-threading okay. for the AMD. So you have a Ryzen 1700, 1700X, 1800X. We have an 8-core CPU with hyper threadings for a total of 16 threads, which equals a lot of the Haswell E stuff with, um, on the X99. But in terms of performance, it's more along the lines of a Kaby Lake.
1: Okay. So I've been seeing, like I say, lots of press, lots of records being broken and Kingpin and all these names that we recognize are, Mm -hmm. are rocking the world with the 1700s. And I just, I'm looking at the price point, which as you know, is a driving factor for me and going, Hey, is it time to start recommending Ryzen? But I'm just not seeing that on the market, and it's not computing for me, Dennis, so so walk me through it. If if Ryzen is not going to compete with KB Lake in everything, Mm -hmm. but it does compete in price point, then where does it sit?
0: In terms of raw performance, it sits between the Core i5 and the Core i7. And I can refer you to the review that I did on Hardware Asylum, which I'll link in the show notes, for more specifics on the performance at different Benchmarks and different processors. I mean, we, it's faster than the FX, which is what AMD claimed when they released it. Right. What Ryzen really brings to the table though, is again, a ground up processor, ground up processor design, I should say, and a new motherboard architecture. So we have motherboards now that have USB 3.1. The Ryzen CPU actually has a USB 3.1 controller on the CPU itself. It also has a dedicated four lanes of PCI Express that is for NVMe and also um, SATA Express and M.2. You have a storage interface directly into the CPU, very fast. It also comes with PCI Express lanes on board, much like Kaby Lake and Sandy Bridge, so that we have video card interfaces to the CPU as fast as possible. And then it turns out that there's also four lanes of PCI Express to link directly to the Southbridge chip, which is where we get USB 3.1, both generations, USB 3.0, USB 2.0. We also have our uh, storage interfaces, everything that's within the chipset.
1: I see a general performance boost across the board.
0: Yeah, with the, the new CPU design... We have multiple cores, which is going to increase multi-threaded performance, and ideally, software being released should be multi-threaded optimized. And that's that's where more cores, more threads, is going to make Ryzen faster than an Intel solution that is core limited. We have 16 threads versus 8 threads.
1: Well, that should hopefully drive the software producers to finally, well, Mm -hmm. embrace multi-core for real, not just Dual core or quad core.
0: Yeah. But if you look at pure multimedia performance, which is like single threaded stuff, you know, single core pathing through the the calculation cycle, Intel is still faster, and that's why the KB Lake and a lot of the core i seven based CPUs are still faster than Ryzen in a lot of CPU benchmarks. And That's also why, you know, the overclockers are catching all these records with W-prime. It's because of the extra cores that are in there. And the benefit is not necessarily that you have a lot of cores, but that they do it so efficiently. I mean, in terms of the TDP of a Ryzen, it is right around what a Core i7 is. So you're going to have the same size CPU coolers on these CPUs. You're not going to have to put in an extra large... Power supply, it's going to save on your power bill. You know, people in California will like that. It's generally just a very efficient CPU, both in power and performance.
1: I get that AMD is, I guess, finally releasing a modern processor. Mm-hmm. And I get that they're finally embracing their power issues, and I'm glad to see that too. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like the competition is good, and competition is always good in the processor front. Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm just not really convinced that Ryzen really is an enthusiast processor.
0: I don't think it really is directed at enthusiasts, even though they might say that the Ryzen 7 is the quote-unquote enthusiast CPU. They're just saying that because it's the the top-of-the-line CPU. They have also a Ryzen 5, which is a cut-down version of the Ryzen 7. It has less cores, still has the hyper-threading or the SMT. And then eventually, they will also have Athlon-based Ryzen or Zencore CPUs that will have an onboard video controller and be more of like the business chips.
1: Oh, maybe we'll see those in the next generation consoles as well. Mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of drives the market from the lowest common denominator too. So if we can bring the lowest common denominator up, that's good for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Dennis, let's bottom line it. So who should really be looking at a Ryzen processor? I mean, what's, what's the target consumer here?
0: I would say that, and this is going to sound bad, but I say the target's consumer is the consumers that are AMD fans. I mean, we're talking the diehard AMD people because, you know, we've been to the Boise land a couple of times. Sure. One of the systems that blew up was an AMD-based system, and she was looking to just fix her machine. So she was looking for AMD hardware and it's becoming harder and harder to find. And you know, one of the the tech guys that was trying to help her was saying, Well, I could put you together, blah, blah, blah. And he was staying within that AMD realm because it was the less expensive option. Sure. I would say the the Ryzen CPU will you know it's going to elevate that performance, but it's going to be for that same crowd. You know, the the enthusiast crowd like us, where we're going to be building top end machines and cost is not necessarily an object we're going to be looking at raw performance and intel still dominates that sort of segment and they you know now that Ryzen is out with these multi-core systems i think we're going to see a lot of lga 115x cpus with more cores coming out just to compete with a lot of the Ryzen marketing with this multi-threaded stuff
1: well if Ryzen can drive intel to actually reduce their prices or increase their performance i guess i'm on board for that too In the meantime, I think I'll recommend Ryzen to my folks with the limited budgets and see if they can build gaming machines that will help drive that competition.
0: For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2017. Thanks for listening.